0: brothers and sisters, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, uh, if you would please turn your Bible to Zechariah chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 15 this morning. Zechariah 6, uh, verses 9 to 15. Uh, you know, one of the uh, very enjoyable things with little children, uh, and especially little children of a pastor that, that I have in my home, or, you know, a church member, when you bring your kids to church, is how they like to pretend and play act uh, scenes from the church. So, you know, I'm thinking of uh, one video that I have of my kids, uh, Eliana and Petra. The the youngest wasn't even born yet, and this was a few years ago. I think they were four and three years old, and they were enacting the scene of baptism at home. I have this on video, and, uh, you know, at our church, the, the person's getting baptized uh, would would get into the baptismal tank and they would read their testimony, and you know so uh, uh, you know the four year old is saying you I'm I'm we're getting baptized baptized and then she takes her, I was raised in Christian family you know yes this and, and and now I'm getting baptized and then you know so she then kneels down put her down on the floor this one and then it's like yay and now next I baptize the other one, and and they were obviously uh, getting ready and pretending doing this skit uh, as they prepare. Uh, to see baptism in the members' meeting at church that night. Well, in this morning's passage, uh, we're going to see something like this. We're going to see a a little drama, a play, a a skit, uh, which is given as a preview of something that happens in reality. So let's pick it up. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 and following. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Cheldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobijah, Jediah and Hen the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this morning, we have come to a transition point, a turning point, in the book of Zechariah as we've been going through this series. So far in the first six chapters... Uh, Zachariah has shown us eight visions, eight visions that are meant to give the people of God hope, to encourage their hearts with hope in the midst of trials and weakness, calling God's people to return to him with the promise that God himself will return to them. In these visions, we've seen God show us that he is absolutely sovereign, that he is in control no matter what the circumstances look like, that he is working to restore his people. We've seen this glorious vision of God's heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that God is promising to rebuild and he will come to dwell with his people once again. We see God's promises of justice, That God will judge his enemies. And more importantly for us, the promise that God will purify his people from sin. That he will save us from our sin and clothe us in spotless garments. And of course, God has promised the rebuilding of his temple. Where he will dwell with his people in glory and we will be with him forever. And the question that comes at the end of these eight visions is, how? How are all these amazing promises going to be fulfilled? How is everything that we've seen in Zechariah's eight visions going to take place? That's the question that today's text answers. The passage today shows us how the Lord is going to fulfill his promises. So, this text is not a vision like what we've been seeing, but this is a prophetic action, a sign action. It's like a small drama or play or skit that signifies something. It provides a preview of what is going to happen, kind of like a a movie trailer. You know, sometimes you see the trailer of a movie that's coming out, a preview, and it gives you some hints of what is coming. It shows you some part of the movie, but not everything. You have to wait for the movie. And so God is giving his people this preview in this skit to fill their hearts with hope and confidence that he will fulfill his promises. And this text answers the question, how? So here's a little uh, question quiz question for you and maybe the kids will be able to answer this sometimes kids answer these kinds of questions better than the adults Uh, it's a it's it's a little tip for interpretation of the bible all right when you are reading the scriptures whenever you are faced with the question of how how will god's promises be fulfilled whether you're reading old testament passage or new testament passage You know, something in the prophets or something in Genesis or whatever you're reading in the Bible. If you're faced with this question, how will God fulfill his promises? The answer is very simple. It's just one word. Right? So kids, do you know the answer? How will God fulfill his promises? I I heard somebody whispering, confident, come on. The answer is Jesus. That's right. All right. Whoever said that gets a prize. The answer, brothers and sisters, is always Jesus. And so in this text today, the Lord shows us Jesus. And brothers and sisters, as we see Jesus in this passage in Zechariah 6, my prayer is that our hearts would be filled with hope and confidence in the fulfillment of God's promises. And we're going to look at three aspects of who Jesus is and how he fulfills God's promises. Number one, Jesus is the perfect king of God's kingdom. Jesus is the perfect king of God's kingdom. Look again at verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Cheldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. So as we read the book of Zechariah, the author constantly places before us the context the situation into which he is writing, the situation into which these promises come. And that context, the historical context, is very important to understand. These people have returned from exile. God had brought his people, Israel, into a beautiful promised land, if you're reading the Old Testament storyline where he would have a relationship with them, where they were to worship him and glorify him and be a light to the nations. God set his king over them, but the people of Israel sinned. They rebelled against God. They turned their hearts away from God to worship false gods and idols. Instead of being a light to the nations, they became just like the nations around them. And God punished his people for their sin. He sent them out of the land into exile in Babylon. Their enemies came and crushed them, burned the city and took them off into exile. And if you remember the context again, Zechariah's visions and prophecy comes 70 years later after they've started returning from exile. They've come back to the land. They've come back to Jerusalem with a hope to rebuild, replant. But when they come back, not everything is the same. The city lies in ruins. They start rebuilding the temple, but the project gets stalled. They don't have a king on their throne. In fact, they're still under Persian rule. There's poverty and distress. They're faced with the reality of their own sin. And so there's great discouragement and weakness into which this word is coming. Where is our kingdom? Where is our king? And and, and here... Zachariah is told go to those exiles who have come from Babylon who have just arrived he names these three guys I don't know if they were recently arrived or couriers or messengers who have just come from the exiles he says take these three guys and take from them something that they have for you and I think he's receiving from them the silver and gold and go to the house of Josiah it might have been some kind of craftsman Verse 11, take from them silver and gold. So Zechariah receives from these people silver and gold, and what does God tell him to do? Make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. Now, this is not an actual coronation, right? He's not crowning Joshua as the king. That would be even interpreted by the Persians as some kind of rebellion. You know, now we're claiming we have our own king. No, actually, this is a, a play, a skit. He's supposed to be signifying something. Just like my daughters baptizing one another on the carpet is not an actual baptism. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a picture. All right? This is a preview to signify what's coming. And, and what do we see in this preview? What is the first thing that is being made and used? What is the prop? It's a crown. Now, where there's a crown, what does that say? There must be a king. There will be a king. He will come. That's God's answer. That's God's message here. And and we see that further explained in, in, in verse 12. The Lord gives a declaration that explains the meaning of the skit. Verse 12, he says, behold, the man whose name is the branch For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And this title, this name is very significant and filled with hope. The branch. What does it mean that he's going to be the branch? Well, maybe you know this from reading the Bible carefully. Maybe you haven't noticed this before. But in the the Bible, in the Old Testament especially... Uh, the, The families of kings, royal house, a royal house in the ancient world was often depicted as a tree. And the house of David, of course, was God's tree, his king for his people. The line from which the kings would come. But now, that tree has been chopped down. Because the kings had sinned along with the people and there was no king from the line of David on the throne. But God is promising that from the root of David's line, there is going to spring up and grow up a branch. The tree is going to come back. The king is going to come again. That's what it means that he is bringing his servant, the branch. There will come a king from the line of David. Uh, uh, God has said this already in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, we saw this verse 8. There the Lord said, I will bring my servant the branch. And we see this promise in other books of the Old Testament as well. Jeremiah speaks of it. Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Same word. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Come back to Zechariah 6. If if there was any doubt about this, that the branch is supposed to be the king, uh, the Lord makes it very, very clear again in verse 13. Verse 13 says, He shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. The king is coming, and he will establish God's kingdom. The crown will be placed on the head of the king and the king will sit and rule on the throne over God's people. That's exciting. Brothers and sisters, the theme of the kingdom of God is one that we see in the Bible from start to finish. That God will establish His kingdom. It's on every page of Scripture. You go back to Genesis. God creates the universe and of course we sing praise to the Lord the Almighty the king of creation He creates this world just by speaking and then he creates Adam and Eve and place them in the garden of Eden and what does he tell them be fruitful and multiply and have dominion fill the earth and subdue it Adam and Eve are placed there as king and queen over creation Adam was to rule this world on behalf of God. They were to rule the world as God's representatives. But what do they do? They fail. They want to rule this world not on behalf of God, but they want to rule the world apart from God. And instead of rightly honoring God as king, they sinned and rebelled against him in the garden. And Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Human beings continue to rule the world. We rule the world in evil ways. Then God rescues his people Israel from Egypt. And what does he tell them? You will be for me a kingdom of priests. And then God appoints a king over his people. First he appointed a king which is the kind of king that they want. That project is an utter failure, King Saul. But then God raises up a king after his own heart and appointed King David and made a promise that there would always be one from David's line on the throne of his people, over his people. Our series in the book of Zechariah is called The Return of the King. And this promise, this little drama here, God is saying to his people, My king is coming. He shall wear his crown. Even though David's line seems to be chopped right now, no, it's still alive. The hope is still alive. The branch will come. Brothers and sisters, this promise has been fulfilled. In our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's promised king. In his arrival, he inaugurated the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. When you open the first book of the New Testament, it shows us the genealogy, the lineage of the king. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, screaming to us, here is God's promised king. The the wise men come from afar, chapter 2, the Magi, and they say, where is the one who has been born? King of the Jews. And when they see him, they fall down and worship him. The gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus giving a great commission to his disciples. But what does he say before that? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus rules and reigns. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is seated on his throne and even now, from heaven, he exercises lordship as king. The kingdom of heaven is advancing even now, brothers and sisters. And we as a church, we get to be a part of this. You know how you have embassies of your home country, right? You're living in a foreign land, and in whatever country you're from, I was just met a sister in the previous service, she works for the embassy of Swaziland. And so, you know, you have an embassy here, that embassy represents the foreign country, in in foreign land here. And that's what the church is supposed to be. We are an embassy of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. I love our vision statement, embassy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here as a representation of the rule of our king. And, and you and me as individual Christians, we are ambassadors for this kingdom, ambassadors of the gospel. We have the privilege of declaring to people the rule of King Jesus. We have the privilege of proclaiming to people that the kingdom of God has come and is advancing. We have the privilege of calling people, inviting people to submit to the rule and reign of this glorious King. You know, as we think about the kingship and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning it can raise a few questions about our lives and our hearts. Maybe for some of you, you need to look into your heart, take a look at your life, and ask yourself, what areas of my life are not in submission to the Lordship To the royal rule of King Jesus. What are the areas of my life where he is not seated on the throne? Maybe some of you need to ask yourself, have I tried to take the crown for myself instead of bowing before the crown of King Jesus? You know others of you maybe need a different uh, message concerning the kingship of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're broken. You feel weak and weighed down and weary. Maybe you just feel tired looking at this world around us. Tired of sin, tired of sorrow, tired of suffering. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is seated on the throne and He has victory. Victory. Our king will set all things right. Jesus is the perfect king for God's kingdom. But there's more in this drama that Zachariah wants us to see. There's even more in this little skit. In fact, there's something very unusual taking place, and maybe you missed it. But now I want you to see it. Look again. Look at the text. Look at verse 11. Zechariah was told, "Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest." So who is receiving the kingly crown in this text? It's Joshua, the high priest. And that should strike us as unusual. Well, maybe you think, oh, this was just the guy who was available to play the role in the skit, and they brought him. No, but I think there's more than that. The Lord wants us to see something here. He's trying to signify something to us. You see, kings and priests were two different offices in Israel. They were totally separate. Different offices occupied by people from different tribes. You had the kingly tribe from which the kings came, David's line, which is the tribe of Judah. And there was the priestly tribe from which the priests were appointed. This was the tribe of Levi. And they were separate. You don't have crowns on the head of uh, of priests. But here there is a symbolic action taking place to show that the future coming king, the branch, will not only be a king... He will also be a priest. And that's uh, the second aspect that we see concerning Jesus in this text. Jesus is not only the perfect king of God's kingdom. He is also the perfect priest for God's people. He's the perfect priest for you and me. As I said, the priests and kings are two separate offices, but here the crown is being placed on the head of the high priest of God's people at that time. The branch will not only be a king, but also a priest. And we've seen this association before in the book of Zechariah. Back in Zechariah chapter 3, remember the priest with the dirty clothes and the change of clothes. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8, the Lord said, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I am bringing, I will bring my servant the branch. So, in that text, the high priest and the priests who were with him were meant to be a sign pointing forward to who? To the branch. The priests themselves are a preview, a picture of the coming branch, which means the branch will be a priest. Look again at verse 13 of chapter 6 if you had any doubt. Verse 13 he says, It is he, that is the branch, who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now when you're reading that, You might see, okay, so there's the branch. He's going to sit and rule on the throne. And there shall be a priest on the throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. So you might be thinking, okay, so we have two guys now, a king and a priest, all of a sudden. And they're both sitting on the throne. So maybe the priest is sitting on the king's lap or something. I don't know. And and the council of peace is between them, so they have peace between the king and the priest. That that might be the way you understood it, but I, I don't think that's the right understanding or the clearest explanation here. In fact, uh, I, I don't think the translation does a disservice over here. If you're looking closely uh, at some of your English Bibles, should have a footnote there, which says, "He shall be a priest on his throne, not there shall be a priest on his throne." So so let's pick that up again. Okay, if if you know, are there two or is there one? Let's read from verse thirteen. Look at the text with me. He who, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. Who's building the temple of the Lord? The branch. And he shall bear royal honor and shall sit on, and rule on his throne. On whose throne? Who's the other person mentioned here in this text? The Lord. right? He build the temple of the Lord and, and then he'll sit and rule on his throne. The Lord's throne. All right? The branch will sit and rule on the Lord's. It's not his own throne. It's God's throne. He's ruling on behalf of God. And he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So who's the both here? It's the Lord and the branch who is the priest. There shall be a council of peace between God and this priest king. The priest's role this is always the role of priests in the Bible. The priest's role is to be a mediator, is to be an intermediary, is to be one who brings peace between God and man. The role of priests in the Bible was to offer sacrifices for sin, to intercede for people and pray for them, to mediate between God and man as man's representative. And from the beginning of the Bible, This is what God has intended, that his people would be close to him and know him and worship him. We go back to the garden. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God, direct access. They themselves function as priests in the Garden of Eden, which is like a temple. Direct fellowship with God. But then they sinned and they're sent out. God rescues Israel from Egypt and what does he tell them? You will be for me a kingdom of priests and then we see this priesthood which is appointed in Israel the the priestly tribe from Levi and and the priests from Levi they were they were to offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people they were to pray and intercede for the people represent the people before God it's not like the priests you see in other religions there's a very specific task for priests in the Bible But here we're seeing now kingship and priesthood being unified in one person. And you know, the Bible actually gives us hints of that elsewhere as well. Maybe you can think of one person who is like that. The Bible promises that a king from David would one day be a priest, and that's in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, God is speaking to the king from the line of David and he says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So who's this guy now, Melchizedek? Well, You have to know the Old Testament. You go back, all the way back to Genesis 14, before there was even a nation of Israel, before there were priests from Levi and Abraham has just won a battle The father of Israel, Abraham. And guess who comes out to meet him? Genesis 14, 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem. So this guy is a king. His name means king. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He's king of Salem. That's probably ancient Jerusalem. Salem also means peace. And he brought out bread and wine to celebrate with Abraham and bless him. And what does the text say? He was a priest of God most high. So we've seen this unique figure in the Bible named Melchizedek who was both a king and a priest in one and God is promising in Psalm 110 that there will come a king from the line of David who will also be a priest forever just like Melchizedek was and we're seeing those promises now come together in Zechariah chapter 6, the coming branch He will be both king, he will wear the kingly crown, and he will be priest. He will perfectly rule God's kingdom, and he will perfectly represent God's people. Brothers and sisters, who has fulfilled this prophecy? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has the kingly throne, and he is the one who is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek, the perfect king and the perfect priest. But how amazing and how shocking how glorious is the way that he shows himself to be king and priest Jesus came to his people as the king but he was not born in a palace he was born in poverty and laid in a manger our King Jesus The king of all, entered his city, Jerusalem, not conquering on a horse, but humble on a donkey. In fact, that fulfills another prophecy from Zechariah, which we'll see later. And our king Jesus, he too received a crown, just like this text prophesies. A crown was placed on his head. Richard Phillips, in his excellent commentary on Zechariah, points us to this crowning of Jesus. He shows us John 19. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now look at verse 5 now. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, listen to these words, Behold the man. There is King Jesus, crown of thorns on his head, face swollen from being battered and bruised, and Pilate says, Behold the man. And maybe you have realized that you've heard those words before. Because look carefully at Zechariah 6, 12. They place the crown on Joshua's head. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Friends, Jesus is not just the perfect king. He is the perfect priest. And he fulfills his priesthood by suffering and dying for sinners like you and me. He fulfilled his role as a priest by wearing the crown of thorns, by dying on the cross. He fulfilled his role as a priest by praying for God's people in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying with loud cries and tears, sweating blood as he prayed for you and me. He fulfilled his role as a priest by hanging on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for sinners. You see, that's, that's our condition. All of us, we are sinners. We have no hope. We have no fellowship with God by ourselves. We stand under condemnation and judgment without access. We are in desperate need of a priest. Not a priest like the religions of this world who is just like us. But a perfect priest One who is perfect in every way and holy to represent us, to mediate for us, to intercede for us, to offer a sacrifice for us. And Jesus comes as our perfect priest, our perfect representative, holy and spotless, fully God and fully man. And he doesn't offer just any sacrifice. He doesn't offer a sacrifice of bulls and goats. No, he offers the perfect sacrifice of himself by dying to save sinners, taking the judgment we deserve so that we might be forgiven and we might have peace with God. Dear non-Christian friend, O sinner heavy laden, children, children, Would you come to this king, to this priest? Would you turn away from your sin and put your trust in this perfect priest, in this glorious king who dies to save his people? The Westminster Shorter Catechism is a great summary of biblical truth and it asks these questions about the offices of Christ and one of them talks about his office as a priest. The question is, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. That means making peace. And in making continual intercession for us. Dear Christian, dear brother, sister, be encouraged this morning that Jesus is making intercession for you even now. He is praying for you. Our perfect priest is praying for you and me. Don't you get encouraged when, when one of your friends or you know another fellow church member tells you, oh, I've been praying for you. Well, Jesus is praying for you all the time. Are you weak or weighed down this morning by sin, by guilt? Struggling with temptation? Behold the man, Christ our perfect priest king. Are you depressed, anxious, tempted, struggling? Behold the man, Christ, who dies for sinners and prays for you. Are you falsely accused by Satan? maybe by someone else struggling with the weight of accusation. Behold the man, Jesus, your perfect priest who intercedes for you at the right hand of God. Your perfect priest has offered a perfect sacrifice to cleanse all your sins forever and he prays for you day and night. And he rules as a king who will set all things Right, brothers and sisters, what a glorious priest-king we have. But there's even more in this passage. Not only is Jesus the perfect king to rule God's kingdom, not only is he the perfect priest to represent God's people, Jesus is also, number three, the perfect king temple for God's worship. You know, I love our congregational singing here at ECC, how we come together and lift our voices in praise to God, the Word of Christ dwelling in us and encouraging one another with our singing. It's very important, and and us, we as elders, are deeply concerned that the truths that we sing, that what we sing is in accord with biblical truth, that what we sing fits with the Bible, and it's God's word that we raise our voices in song. And sometimes, you know, we we will look at a song and say, hmm, is this biblical? And there's one song which is a number one hit at ECC, you know, definitely top five, I think top one favorite, right, Uh, that we've been singing for a long time. And there was a debate among the pastoral staff a couple of years ago about this song. And the song is, surprise, surprise, Days of Elijah. I love that song. And there's a line in there where he's sing, uh, These are the days of your servant David Rebuilding a temple of praise And actually one of the members of ECC brought this to us and then Pastor Jeremy listened to what he said and he came back and said, You know, I'm, I'm struggling with days of Elijah. The, you know, we started debating this. It's Solomon who builds the temple. Why does it say these are the days of your servant David rebuilding the temple of praise? It's Solomon who builds the temple. Right? And so, you know, we had a lot of debate back and forth. We're showing this verse from Amos and this and that. And, you know, that debate continued for a long time. And he just, Pastor Jeremy, so humble, just decided to submit and keep singing the song and sings it with joy. But this week, I reopened the debate and sent him a WhatsApp message saying, Zechariah chapter 6, David, the branch is the new David. And he will build the temple. Look over here at verse 12. Behold the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. This is the servant David, the new and better David who is building God's temple. And he built a temple far greater than we've ever seen or ever imagined than any of these people could have imagined. You know, some Promises in the Old Testament, you have to know how to read them. I, imagine this story. This is an illustration often used. In, in the year 1900, a man promises his little son Johnny, Johnny, on your 21st birthday, I'm going to buy you a horse-drawn carriage. Right? A horse-drawn carriage. And uh, you know, this is the little carriage was pulled by horses. And, and Johnny's very excited, and he's waiting, you know for the day to come. And on his 21st birthday, little Johnny goes out of the house. What does he see? He sees an automobile across the street. A car, a Ford. Because in between these years, that's what's been invented. Is the promise fulfilled? Yes, absolutely. But the promise is fulfilled in a way that was far greater than anyone than little Johnny's mind could have imagined. And here there's a promise of building God's temple. But when Jesus fulfills the promise of building the temple, it's not just a temple of brick and stone. It's not just a temple of gold and silver even. No, it's a temple of people. You see, Jesus himself is God's temple. He said when he arrived, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He is the perfect priest king and he is the temple of God. It is in Jesus that we can know and access and worship God and not just that he makes us a royal priesthood and a temple first peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 as you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, the church, become the temple of God in which God dwells, in which he is worshipped. We are the temple that Jesus is building. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Not only are we the temple that he is building, but we get to help in the building work. Notice what it says in verse 15. Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's you and me. We are the ones who were far off, whom God has now brought near To help to build the temple of the Lord. We are the fulfillment of this prophecy. If you had any doubt, Ephesians chapter 2. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are God's temple and we have the privilege and calling to build this temple. How do we do that? By living in obedience and proclaiming, sharing the gospel. I want to close by highlighting what it says in verses 14 and 15 of Zechariah 6. The crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this prophecy was accompanied by a couple of commands. First, when when the temple is rebuilt, this crown should be placed there as a reminder of the rule of God over his people. They had the symbol of God's rule. Friends, we have the reality. And a question I want to ask you is, is the crown of King Jesus in our lives. Does he have lordship and rule over your life? Does he have lordship and rule over his temple, the church? Does his crown occupy its place in our church? The text ends there saying, all this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Friends, God's promises always come with a call to respond in obedience. So let's examine our hearts and lives again today that we live in submission to our glorious priest-king and labor to build his temple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our perfect priest-king. We pray that we would live under his rule and labor for the building of his temple. In Jesus' name, amen.